Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today on Seizing Life, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Doug Nordley. Dr. Nordley is a pediatric neurologist at the University of Chicago Medicine, where he is also Chief of Pediatric Neurology and the co-director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Center. Dr. Nordley is here to discuss the diagnostic and treatment journey for children with epilepsy and their families. Dr. Nordley, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to jump into this conversation because I, you know, for all of our, our parents and caregivers out there, please bookmark this episode, flag it. There are so many questions that we're going to get into that are going to be so valuable across the the length of an epilepsy journey. And I'm just so grateful to be able to ask you all of these questions. I admire and respect you so, so very much. To begin with, uh, you know, what, aside from, you know, an obvious seizure. Um, what should parents be on the lookout when wondering if perhaps their child has had a seizure? Well, um, thank you so much, Kelly, for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure. And let me return that compliment. I um, admire the work that you do on behalf of all people with epilepsy tremendously. Um, so um, I think everybody is aware of the most overt manifestations of a seizure, you know, what we call a tonic-clonic seizure. And what that refers to is a sudden stiffening of all the body, followed by clonus, which is rhythmic jerking. And, you know, that's the kind of classic um, image probably that comes up in all of our minds when we think about a seizure. But in reality, that's only a minority of seizures. And many of them are subtler, particularly in babies. And so what parents need to be on the lookout for is any sudden change in the behavior of their child, particularly when it's associated with some type of unresponsiveness. So an easy thing to do, you know, it's not not uncommon for everybody to daydream a little bit or get drowsy. So an easy thing to do is to try to engage the attention of the child to see if they're responsive and if they can, you know, look at the parent and then utter some response to questions. Okay, so the parent now is suspecting abnormal behavior, be it a seizure or something else behaviorally. Something is going on. Flags have been raised. What should the parent do? Should they immediately take the child to the emergency room? Should they contact their pediatrician? What's the next step? Yes, I think, you know, in, in, a, in a minority of circumstances, let's say if it's a convulsion, Many times what happens is that EMS is called and then the response from there is to take the child to the emergency room. So that's often what happens. But let's take a, maybe a more common scenario where the parents who know their child's behavior so well suspect that something is wrong, then the thing to do is, number one, if, they're, if, they're, if they have this capability like we are now, is capture that episode on a video. Like if they can use their phone and capture it, the video quality of phones is amazing. And that's so helpful to us if, if the events are recurring and they can. If not, then um, definitely calling the pediatrician and then explaining like, oh, I saw this you know, sudden change in behavior. 
And, and again, if they have, if they were able to capture it on video, that would be great. But even if they can't, describing it to the pediatrician who can then take it to the next step. Okay. And then are there some conditions out there that could be confused for epilepsy? So you think your child has had a seizure or maybe they have had a seizure, um, but it's not epilepsy. Absolutely. And, you know, over the years of doing this, I've come to to trust parents. Parents have, a, a, in my experience, a really good sense of when something is wrong, but not all the time is that thing that's wrong a seizure. So there are many things that can mimic it. And even, you know, to skilled observers fool us and we think, oh, that looks like a seizure, but in fact, it's not. So some common themes that come up or, you know, when people pass out um, and sometimes at, after passing out, you know, they faint they may have brief movements and that sometimes gets, you know, suspected that, oh, that's a seizure. So a very simple rule of thumb is almost always, almost always, when an individual is having a seizure, their eyes are open. If their eyes are closed, it's probably something else. So that's a very helpful hint that we use a lot when we're looking at videos. Oh, that's actually really fascinating. That's a good sort of tell. You discover that the child is having a seizure or strongly suspected. The pediatrician refers you to a neurologist or the ER says to schedule an appointment with a neurologist. I can't tell you how many parents I've had conversations with where they tell me that they've tried to get an appointment and it's going to be months. Now, the language that is that we are giving out there, uh, that we're putting out there, is that seizures are a medical emergency. And then to try and schedule an appointment and find out that it's going to be months before you can get in to see a doctor can be alarming. What should a parent do when faced with that situation? Um, well, first of all, I think the message that you're sending is a good one, that, that it is good to get prompt attention for something that's suspected of being a seizure because we, we have to figure out what's going on. Is it a seizure? And then if so, what's, you know, if we can, what's causing it? So I think several months wait is not acceptable. Um, so I think there's two things that parents could do. One is to, you know, if they got referred to the pediatrician, they called the neurologist's office, and they said, oh, it'll be several months, is call back the pediatrician and say, I need a more urgent appointment. And then the pediatrician can usually put pressure on the neurologist to say, you know, this is a new onset, can't you get them in sooner? If that doesn't work, um, one silver lining from this horrible pandemic is that most of us are doing telemedicine. So there may be resources within your state um, at, for example, an epilepsy center within the state that offers telemedicine. And it's not quite as good as being in person, but it's it's for, for epilepsy, it can be a very good substitute, at least to get the ball rolling. So I would tell parents, don't get discouraged. Um, reach out to the pediatrician. If that fails, then look up some resources in your state or, or close by and see if they offer telemedicine consultations. Yeah. And I, I would probably add to that also that if you are fortunate enough to live in an area where there are multiple hospitals or multiple pediatric epilepsy uh, or pediatric neurologist to try a different healthcare center and see if you can get in somewhere else and keep the other appointment that's a few months later because you can always 
you can always use a second opinion. Um, but don't um, just keep keep trying different centers as well to see if you can you can get into another another hospital, another doctor. Yes, that's it. That's your your. Uh, that's a really good suggestion. And on you know on on the ep, on the Cure Epilepsy website, um, there there's information that that lists all of the centers, the epilepsy centers in the United States. So you can you can, that's easy for parents to do. They could go to that and then see a list of all of the approved you know comprehensive centers. And and probably I would I would guess virtually all of them have some form of of telemedicine now. That's that's an excellent idea. I sort of want to piggyback on that a little bit in sort of a two part question. You know, we throw around the terms neurologist and epileptologist, as well as, you know, you may go to a neurologist's office um, versus going to an epilepsy center. What are the differences in these terms? Mm -hmm. So most of the time, I believe most children should see a child neurologist. You know, now there are enough of us that 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 there's over a thousand of us in the United States that are active. So so I think that the expectation should be to see a child neurologist. So what is a child neurologist? Child neurologist is somebody who's done specialized training um, for that specialty. They've done two years of pediatrics, a year of adult neurology, and then two years of child neurology training. And in that training, um, we as child neurologists get a lot of exposure to children with seizures and epilepsy. So um, they should expect that the child neurologist should have a very high level of competence in caring for children. Now an epileptologist, a pediatric epileptologist is the same as a child neurologist, that same training, but then they've done an additional one or two years of training. So now seven years of training after medical school many times. And, And then going beyond that, they tend to focus their work on just patients with epilepsy. So every year, you know, they keep increasing their skill set and just focusing on that aspect of, of child neurology. So many of them are in comprehensive epilepsy centers, the epileptologists, um, although some, some may be outside of those comprehensive centers. And what is the difference between a comprehensive epilepsy center and your general neurologist's office? So Comprehensive Epilepsy Center has met the criteria. There's a national organization that surveys all of our centers and it, and it has a certain bar for, you know, um, qualifications. At, at the highest level, that's a center that has the capability of doing absolutely everything that is needed to care for a child with epilepsy, whether it's dietary, you know, medication, surgical approach, etc. And when should a parent push for their child to see an epileptologist over a neurologist or to visit an epilepsy center versus uh, the general doctor's office? I would say for the most part, I would expect that they would see a child neurologist. Now, there are some exceptions, and not to complicate things, but many epilepsy centers have opened up what we call new onset seizure clinics. So, um, and, and many of those, the expectation is that the child is seen within one week. So kind of getting back to our earlier comments, like if they're disappointed in their appointment with the child neurologist, call to see if there's an epilepsy center. They may have a telemedicine and they may also, um, many of these may have new onset seizure clinics where they fast track children in. Um, that aside, 
like let's say that the child is seen by a child neurologist um, and all goes well, that's great. If if there's if there are speed bumps in uh, you know in this journey, then that's when you know they should that parents should think about going to a pediatric epileptologist and and we we could talk about what those speed bumps may be. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. An estimated 3.4 million Americans and 65 million people worldwide currently live with epilepsy. For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. So Dr. Nordley, once a family has visited the neurologist's office, what sort of tests can they anticipate that the doctor is going to order and how will they come to a conclusion or a diagnosis of epilepsy? There are three tests I would say nowadays that have become so common. Um, The first and the most important is an EEG. Um, That's a brainwave study where electrodes are gently placed on the child's scalp and then we record the brain electrical activity it's been around for a while and it remains the single most helpful test. If that shows abnormalities and the first event was, say, an unprovoked seizure, then even with that information, nowadays we can diagnose epilepsy, which is, we all know, is, is defined as a condition of pre, where someone is predisposed to recurrent seizures. So that's changed nowadays. Um, so EEG is, is one of the most important. It not only tells us, like, is someone at risk for another seizure, but also many times can give us a clue as to what kind of a seizure or what kind of epilepsy are we dealing with if it is epilepsy. So that test is very helpful. I would say almost all the time um, they, they could expect that there will be a brain MRI. And an MRI is, use, uses... Uh, you know, it, it's basically a simple principle where someone's put in a magnetic field and then a, a little radio pulse is, is put in and then a signal, believe it or not, is released from, from our tissues in our brain and then computers can analyze those signals and it's amazing. I mean, probably people are pretty familiar with MRIs, but it's amazing the quality of the structural images that we get nowadays. Um, and uh, so I'd say with, with some exceptions they should expect that they probably the neurologist will order an MRI. Um, and then last, and this has become so important to us nowadays, is genetic testing. Um, and particularly when, when the epilepsy is starting relatively earlier in life, genetic testing is, um, has really transformed our landscape. Not everybody is, is a good candidate for genetic testing. It would be only a subset of the patients, but I would say that's the third commonest test that we're ordering nowadays. I hear from a lot of families as well that, you know, maybe the MRI came back fine, the genetic testing was inconclusive or, you know, normal. Um, but the EEG, it, they're uncertain. What are the next steps there? So... First of all, like I, I think it's important that we remember that um, even in, in this modern age where we have all these wonderful tools, epilepsy is still a clinical diagnosis. So, you know, if we're convinced that the episodes were seizures and recurrent, we can still, once they've been two, we can s- still then, you know, accurately diagnose epilepsy. 
But beyond that, we want to try to characterize it further to, to try to get a better understanding of exactly what type and, and what was the underlying cause of that. So here's the thing that I'm sure parents struggle with, I struggle with, which is I always want to know the answer, right? I want to know why did this happen? Um, but here's the paradox. It's better if I can't figure it out. If I can identify a brain MRI abnormality, there's no genetic abnormality. Generally speaking, that fits into a category of what we used to call primary epilepsy or idiopathic epilepsy. And as a rule, there are exceptions, but as a rule, that the, the chance of remission of, you know, spontaneously growing out of epilepsy is higher. So I always struggle with that. Like on the one hand, there's a part of me that was like, I want to know why this child's having seizures. And another part of me is, gosh, I hope we don't find out why this child is having seizures. Right. Then then it's more likely a, a more serious issue. Yes. At what point in the journey should the parents or caregivers start seeking out a second opinion? Most epilepsy comes under control pretty quickly and, and not too diff and with, without a lot of difficulty, assuming that the, you know, selection of the medication was correct. So I would say, um, they sh the parents should expect their child to be well controlled within a few months. Sometimes I'm saying a few months because sometimes it takes uh, a little bit of time for the concentration. Let's say if they're put on a medication for the concentration of the medication to come up to an appropriate level. And, and then it takes a little bit of time to see if it's going to work. Um, so I'd say on the order of months, and certainly if two well-chosen treatments haven't fixed the problem. Okay. So you talk about it can take, you know, a month or two or even three, I know, for sometimes those medications to reach a therapeutic level and for anyone to even understand if it's actually doing what it should. How long then before you decide if we need to try a new medication and then what happens if that medication doesn't work? How many options are there? Really good questions. So um, let's talk about that, the, the first one. So, and this has changed for me um, also. Like when I first started, I would, I would insist on pushing the medication to its absolute highest level. And, and, I've, and now newer research suggests that's not the best approach. That once you get to a reasonable level, <clears throat> there's probably no need to push that medication to a toxic concentration. So I would say once that medication's at a reasonable level where you'd expect that it should work and it's not doing the trick, time to move on. Don't keep, you know, working and working and pushing that too high. Um, there are uh, many options. We had made like um, these helpful cards for our residents and I think there are over 30 you know, cards that I made for uh, the different kinds of medications and, and their attributes. So we have a lot of choices. If the second one um, does the trick, great. If it doesn't, then statistically, it's less likely that the third is going to work. And that's, that's where we need to pause, hit the pause button and say, okay, what's wrong here? And do we have the wrong diagnosis? Is there some other test that needs to be done? You know, is there an alternative type of treatment that we should think about? And I think getting back to your, you know, earlier question, that's if if the child neurologist is helping to guide through all those um, 
aspects, great. If not, then that's the time for a second opinion. And what other options are there outside of medication? We have uh, at least three other options nowadays. Uh, one is diet. And diet has come a long way. You know, when I was in training, our only dietary option was the full ketogenic diet. And now we have many different versions that are much better tolerated and much easier to use compared to way back when. A uh, second um, big option is if we're dealing with a focal type of epilepsy is surgery. Now, obviously that's um, frightening. It's something that we never embark on early on, but if it looks like medications aren't working and there's a single source for the seizures and we can, you know, just, we can see it basically on imaging studies, then that child may be a good candidate for a focal resection. And, and, I should mention that our um, resources there have increased dramatically. So nowadays, um, many times we don't even need to, to do a, a large operation. We can use a very you know small diameter laser to ablate the tissue if it's if it's not too big of a, a size. And then the third, and this is probably you know um, after those other options are various you know forms of neurostimulation where using a device kind of like the idea of like and you know a defibrillating or a, you know pacemaker kind of like you know idea but device that constantly sends some sort of electrical signal to the brain or nerves that supply the brain to try to dampen down the epilepsy would that be like a vns a vagus nerve stimulator yeah exactly yeah okay so Family goes in to the neurologist's office and they're trying these different treatments. They have this epilepsy diagnosis, but so often they come out with more questions than answers. What information should their neurologist be giving them? What questions should they be asking? Um, <clears throat> yeah, this is a really important topic. So let me tell you how I, as a pediatric epileptologist, kind of approach things. I fundamentally want to know three things. I want to know precisely what type of seizure or seizures am I dealing with? You know, what kind what, what kind of seizures? And there's a, a variety of, of ways that we classify seizures. And for parents who are listening to this, um, again, I would say go to the Cure Epilepsy website on the information page for for uh, patients and parents, there's a really nice section that talks about the different types of seizures. So that's the first thing I want to know. Um, the second thing that I want to know is, what is the epilepsy syndrome? So the epilepsy syndrome is a thing that is particularly important in pediatric epilepsy, where it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a, a way of taking everything together, information about the patient, the seizure type, the EG, and putting it all together in one package um, that's called a syndrome. And back in the day, we used to treat patients based on the seizure type. Increasingly, we to get more precision, we are we are looking at the epilepsy syndrome. So that's the second thing that I want to find. The last and maybe the most important is the cause, if I can. I want to know the cause because now we have certain select treatments for specific causes and you can see the handwriting on the wall. We're going to have many more options for specific treatments as time goes by. So those are the three things, seizure type, epilepsy syndrome, and cause. With regard to the epilepsy syndrome, if, if people go to epilepsy.org, there's, there's a 
ILAE section. And within that, there's a thing called epilepsydiagnosis.org. It's a little wonky. I mean, it's, it's like getting a lot into all the details, but if, if they've been told an epilepsy syndrome and they want to double check it, that's a good resource to look into. Thank you. And, you know, rewind and, and make sure that, you know, anyone who's listening, write down those websites. Those are great resources to go to to get that information if you're not getting it from your neurologist. So another kind of tricky question here, but but so, so unbelievably important. When should the neurologist mention SUDEP to the family, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy? Right away. Um you know, maybe not the first minute of the, the conversation, but as soon as possible. I mean, dealt with um, tens of thousands of, of families and, and it's hard to hear the news about, you know, even that their child has epilepsy. So, so sometimes it takes time just to kind of process that. One way that I like to introduce it is, um, there's a couple of ways, but, but, but one way sometimes is, you know, particularly if somebody is new to this, um, they, 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 the, the experience of seeing their child have a seizure is one of the most traumatic events anyone's probably going to have in their life. Right. And, and one of the things that I think that, that bothers all of us about it is that this fear that the child is dying, like it's just unconscious, it's in our unconscious, like that's what's happening. It's so frightening. And, and many times what I've observed is people will break down when they're describing that. And then I think it's good to pause and then at that point, say, you know, bring up this, that a lot of people thought that a lot of people think that their child is dying. So then people usually say, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. And said, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the risks of that. Because it's fresh in their mind, right? If the, if the interview allows it, then you can get right into it at that point. Let's say if it, if it doesn't, then, then another way to introduce it is maybe towards the end of that interaction is to say, Parents will often ask, what things should I do? Like, how should life change? And then that's another nice time to say, let's talk about the risks of, of seizures. And we can go through all the things like risks of injury, risks of drowning, risk of SUDEP. And, and I think that's an, a nice kind of more, you know, it has less emotional valence to bring that up and discuss it. And here's the thing that surprised me as a professional, you know, doing this is that I don't, this is not the thing where you're scaring people. They're already scared, you know, and they, they already are aware that something's wrong. So I think bringing it up and having a straightforward discussion, if anything, helps in terms of calming, you know, okay, okay, here it is. These are the risks. This is what we're going to do about it. Okay. So now not just all um, epilepsy caregivers and parents need to watch this, but we now also need to make sure that all medical students are watching this as well so they know exactly what to say to their patients in the room because you're you're 100% correct. The parents are already scared. They're already frightened. So be real with them. Be honest. Let them know the risks and then talk to them about all of the different ways that they can mitigate them. 100%. That's just... I don't think I've ever heard it articulated so clearly before. Dr. Nordley, I also wonder, is this something that a patient or caregiver can bring up with their doctor, bring SUDEP up with their doctor? Absolutely. And I think if, 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 the, if parents listening to this haven't heard that discussion with their physician, then I would encourage them to do that. And they could bring it up and say, you know, can we talk about the risks of epilepsy in, 
uh, and I've heard about this thing called SUDEP. And, and uh, that, would, that would be a perfect opportunity for that discussion to take place. So ideally, and in most situations, the epilepsy and seizures will be controlled with one of the first two medications. If they're not, we have lots of other medications that we can try. There's also these other treatments that we've discussed. So we sort of go off on two different avenues here. I feel like we have two different groups. We have the people who are um, medication resistant, intractable epilepsy, and we have the people who are controlled. For the people who are controlled, what does their relationship look like with their epileptologist moving forward? For the patients who are controlled, it's important to stay in contact with the, let's say, the epileptologist or the child neurologist because we know um, from a lot of research that there are other conditions that can go along with epilepsy. You know, we call them comorbid conditions. And so even though the epilepsy is well controlled, we still need to be alert to other things that um, are important to manage. So so what are these? These could be things like attentional problems, um, difficulty performing in school. Maybe there's a little bit of a learning disability. Um, we need to stay alert to mood and behavioral issues. Um, there's, we, 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 we don't want to miss an opportunity to intervene with somebody who may have, you know, some depression. Um, so the majority of people won't suffer from these things, but a subset of children will. And what we learned is that it's important to get on top of those issues right away for the best possible outcome. I love that you are bringing up the mental health aspect of it, because that's something that we have discussed so much on this podcast, and I think often gets overlooked. Um, but they do go, they truly do go hand in hand, epilepsy and mental health and and making sure that the, the neurologist is on top of that as well, and that the parents and caregivers are on top of that. Now, for the patients who have the intractable epilepsy, um, you know, we've talked about the epilepsy centers. I know a lot of times parents and the patients, they get comfortable with their neurologist and they think that, you know, they, they know their, their child best and they're, or they're worried about hurting the feelings of this doctor who has been helping them. But at what point do they need to seek out that, um, that second opinion? At what point do they need to go to that epilepsy center? The vast majority of child neurologists that went into this um, profession really care about children. And, and what we like is, is when, when we feel like we've made a lasting impact in, in the life of a child. So if something's not going right um, and child's continuing to suffer um, seizures, it's, it's you know, very bothersome as well to the child neurologist. So, so if the parents bring up and say, hey, do you think it's time for a second opinion? I would say the vast majority of child neurologists, their ego is not going to get bruised. They're going to actually be comforted to in, in in most circumstances say that's a great idea like let's do that maybe there's something that somebody else could help us with that could make the child better and then in an ideal world once that happens then the care could be returned again to the child neurologist oh that's i think that's a really important you know you you have this comfort with this doctor it doesn't mean that just because you're getting a second opinion that you're transferring your care it just means that you're getting more information and then you can still come back to that doctor that you that you know and are comfortable with um girls with epilepsy it brings when you bring in reproductive health into the conversation it further complicates these discussions around these medications, 
It's hard to be thinking about your future daughter's reproductive health when they're six months old, three years old, six years old. But is this a conversation that you need to be having with their neurologist? Or at what point do you need to be having that conversation when discussing meds about uh, their reproductive health? Absolutely. I, I, it is a conversation that, that needs to happen. And I would say e- even in preteen girls, you know, we, we need to think about this. We do as child neurologists, um, as we've learned more about, you know, the side effects of certain medications, we're, we're very skittish about introducing certain medications in girls, even as preteens, because thinking like, what if they have to stay on this as they enter their reproductive years? And so it's always, uh, you know, from a, you're right. And, and, you know, if you're, it's okay. Now you have to keep in mind, I am a father of two girls. So it, it's, I, I understand it could be a delicate issue to bring up. So I usually introduce it and say, I know, you know, like pregnancy is a long, long way away. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, but we need to start thinking about this, you know. So there are things that, that are very important to consider. And I think that um, if, if that hasn't come up at, in, with parents in their discussions with uh, their, their child neurologist, that they should bring it up about, you know, hey, I'm concerned about ultimately reproductive health. Another question that I get a lot is around the transition from pediatric to adult care. It is very overwhelming, especially if it's an earlier onset um, epilepsy and you've been with this doctor for ages or, I mean, health insurance, all of these things. There's so many changes that come about, living independently, what have you, going from that pediatric to that adult transition in care. When do you recommend that that happens? What tips do you have for parents and patients to make that transition as smooth as possible? I would say in general, sometime between 18 to 25 years, you know, depending upon uh, what's going on with the individual is, is a general rule of thumb. As child neurologists, I mentioned that we spend a year in adult neurology. So we're pretty comfortable dealing with a lot of adult neurology um, conditions. What I think we're less comfortable dealing with is adult medical issues. You know, we trained for two years in pediatrics, so we're good with that. But we don't know an awful lot, really, when it comes to adult medical conditions. So I think so long as the person is generally physically healthy, we're, we're in good shape for monitoring them and caring for them. And lots of times I'll use, you know, it, it'll depend upon where, like, let's say they're 18, they're going off to college, let's say, and then... You know, then um, it, it'll depend on like, well, where is that? And then are they coming back home afterwards? So sometimes that, that gets into it. Another aspect can be that we talked about some of these genetic conditions and, and we are on the front line of um, dealing with and, you know, uncovering these genetic conditions. So we as child neurologists know a lot about them. Our adult neurology colleagues are increasingly, you know, learning about these so sometimes it could be helpful for us to kind of stay involved a little bit later than we normally would just because the conditions are relatively unusual for an, for an adult neurologist. That being said, like, what do we do? I think it's, we studied this when I was on the an, an ILEE commission, a pediatric commission. We studied transition programs in, around the world. And, I, and one of the, um, there are two things that I found were helpful. Uh, one is start preparing early. So, um, 
And you can do that by making sure that the child, like, you know, knows um, basic information about epilepsy, like they have epilepsy, what kind of epilepsy? And then maybe at the next, you know, visit, what kind of medication are you taking? And then at the next visit, what kind of, you know, what are the doses of the medication that you're taking? And then um, increasingly devote a little bit of time specifically in the interview to that adolescent, you know, and um, so that uh, they get increasingly comfortable telling this this story about what's happened. Um, and then the other thing is that we learned is if sometimes you can have conjoint um, situations where both the child neurologist and the adult neurologist can see the patient at the same setting. If that can't happen, what I like to do is to have one more visit after they've met the adult neurologist just to make sure there are no loose ends. So in other words, some kind of overlap is ideal. I like that. I especially love about empowering the child earlier on with their own medical information. I think that's that's so useful. As a doctor who has treated countless children and had goodness knows how many conversations with parents and caregivers over the years, what tips and recommendations do you have for the parents and caregivers in those conversations to get the most out of them in negotiating different treatments or asking the questions? What's the best, what's the best way? Two things come to mind about that. One is um, it's very helpful as questions come up um, to write them down and so that, um, you know, that we can kind of make sure that we've addressed like all the questions that have come up. And I think um, not to be afraid to bring up topics, um, you know, like if there's something out there that, you know, you heard about and you want to have a discussion, then do it. Um, likewise, if somebody has a thought about something um, bring it up. I can't tell you how many times that the thing that has been helpful has been listening to parents and some nuances about what they, you know, have discovered or their, their impression about what's working or not working. It's so valuable. Um, and I rely a lot on parents and I'm particularly keen to pay attention to maternal grandmothers. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, here's my theory on that one. I, uh, I feel like, you know, maternal grandmothers have good communication with the, with the mother. And, and they also have a, a little bit more objectivity because, you know, more time on the planet. And um, so my advice, by the way, that I often tell, uh, you know, physicians in training is go against the impressions of a maternal grandmother at your own peril. <laughs> you have just made my mother a very, very happy woman, and I may not hear the end of it. <laughs> that is that is brilliant advice. Dr. Norley, I'm so grateful to you for your, your decades of practice and treating so many children, helping so many families, and, and coming on and, and sharing your vast knowledge and experience with us today. I truly believe that this episode is going to help so many families, whether they're beginning this journey or well on their way. Thank you so very much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for suggesting it. And, and I hope it has been useful to parents. Thank you, Dr. Nordley, for your thorough explanation of the diagnostic and treatment journey for children with epilepsy and their families. 
Locating accurate information about epilepsy and understanding your diagnosis are vital to making decisions about care and ensuring that you are getting the best treatment possible. To learn more about epilepsy, visit the Understanding Epilepsy section of the Cure Epilepsy website at cureepilepsy.org forward slash understanding. Through research, there is hope. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.